Hello everyone, I'm Joel Van Hoogen, and this is The Bread of Life, a radio ministry of Church Partnership Evangelism and the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. To learn about our work around the world and our work in our community, go to breadoflifeboise.org. And now to God's Word. I doubt very much that you've considered the stunning breadth of faith that Abraham exercised when first he believed the promise of God to bless him, to bring a nation up through him, and then to make him a blessing to all the nations of the earth. It was an immense faith, and worthy as the example of the faith through which God accounts to us, and did account to him, righteousness. If we're saved by faith, and that we are, No other example of that saving faith is better than that of Abraham's. I think that it's likely true that the believer rarely takes hold of or considers the immensity of their faith. It's rare that they consider the immensity of what they believe in and what they believe for, what they've taken unto themselves. Our faith encompasses more than we can imagine. It's something that lays hold of eternity. It's something that claims the fabrication or the making up of a whole new creation and a whole new universe of which we will reign over and acquire for ourselves. The Bible says that the meek shall inherit the earth, but it also tells us that the Lord Jesus is coming again. And when God comes again, it says God is going to refashion or remake all the heavens and the earth, and we will reign with him over all things that he's made. Now that's, that's rather amazing. That's a faith that encompasses something quite grand and quite wonderful. And to have that kind of faith, you, you have to believe in something immense, immense, far beyond yourself. And you have to believe in it against what you see and what you experience and what you are And you have to believe in it for something grand and great. I don't know that we always consider these things. In our scripture reading today, we read from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Let me read to you verses 4 through 6 again. I want you to see how it is that when we come to the Lord Jesus and we believe in him, fallen, broken, marred in our sins, the Bible says dead in our trespasses and sins, spiritually separated from God, with nothing to offer God, We trust him to do something within us, something wonderful within us in which he brings us forward to himself and he gives us new life. And so here's what Ephesians 2, 4 through 6 says. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Jesus Christ. Now that's, that's quite a faith. That's quite a belief, a belief that I was spiritually separate from God, spiritually dead from God, spiritually unresponsive to God, but God has intervened and come into my life, and through faith, God has made me alive and given me new life, and not only that, that God has thrust me to the very throne room of heaven in which I reign and I rule and I sit with Christ above all the heavens. Now, that's part of our faith. Go on and read what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Not only do we believe that God has raised us up and given us new life, but we believe that God in that new life has made us a whole new creature. That we who were so intertwined with brokenness and sin that we could not escape and God extracted us from this death of sin and then put within us a being or a creation that was new in every way. 
whole new creation. And so we read in verses 8 through 10, For by grace you've been saved through faith. Now here's what your faith is. It's not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We, we are a new creation, and that's why 2 Corinthians 5.17 is a number, another one of those verses we lay hold of. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, everything has become new. It's a rather remarkable thing to believe God for. A rather remarkable thing to set your sights upon by faith. This faith, this wonderful faith, is illustrated for us, according to Paul here, by the life of Abraham. In fact, it's so wonderfully brought forward by Abraham that he is called the father of all those who believe, the father of those who have faith. His faith was a faith that believed God for a promise. He believed that God could be believed and that God could be trusted to keep his word. And by that faith, we're told that he was made righteous before God. This morning we're going to consider this faith of Abraham that made him righteous. And in considering this faith, we're going to come to understand how it is that our faith as well encompasses something so bold and so grand as to believe that in the immensity of faith, we might be made right with God. We might be raised from death into life. We might become persons who are whole new beings before God. Individuals who are set above the heavens to reign and rule with God. So as we come before this and we look at Abraham's faith, there are certain things we have to notice. And the first thing we need to notice here is that Abraham's faith rises from one grounding point. It rises from the ground of what he understood to be true about God. Without a robust confidence in who God is, there can be no faith or belief in what God promises. And so his belief first did not lay hold of the promise. His belief held of and took hold of the promiser. It was the ground of who God was that anchored Abraham's faith. So the first thing we say here is the ground of Abraham's faith was confidence in God. And in this passage that we're looking at, Paul is led by the Holy Spirit to point out two points of confidence that Abraham had in the presence of God. Two things about God that he was certain of and sure of that then guided his life of faith and guided or gave birth to this faith that made him righteous before God. And there are two things, and the first thing is this. Abraham believed that God was a God who gives life to the dead. God was a God who gives life to the dead. Now that's not a small point of belief. That's not a small point of faith. We live in a modern world in which we are largely cut away from the images and expressions of death. We enjoy and eat our food without considering how it comes to us. We enjoy that steak, and we're never at the moment in which that steak was initially prepared for us, right? We don't face and confront death, and we don't even see it in our own lives. A person might become sick that has grown in our household, and they're taken away to some hospital, and there are individuals who oversee them and provide them hospice care, and very often, we're not there. We don't witness and see these things, but Abraham would have witnessed and seen those things, and he knew what death was like. I remember when I was a seminary student, one of our assignments in one of our class, just for pastoral training, was to go and spend a day in the morgue. Now that's a rather stunning place to be in, but it's never been anything like that. And to go back in the morgue and to see who the latest arrivals were in the morgue. And so there's a row of what looked like filing cabinets, awfully large filing cabinets, and then they pull out one of those filing cabinets and it comes out a long ways 
And there, underneath a sheet of clear plastic, is Mrs. Such-and-Such -such or Mr. Such-and-Such, -and, -such, and it's stunning. I was reminded, naked we come into the world and naked we go out. Death and its finality. Abraham was aware of the finality of death in ways that many modern men are not aware of, and yet, in the midst of him viewing that death, a conviction began to grow upon him that God was a God who could overcome death itself. Now, this was not just unique to Abraham. Actually, a contemporary of Abraham, and most commentators think somebody who was living some short while before Abraham was Job. And Job reveals that he had this same confidence that was welling up within him that God was a God who could overcome death and could make the dead alive. I thought about this. You know, Abraham lived before the testimony of Elisha who, who brought a dead person back to life and Elijah who before that brought a dead person back to life and certainly before the Lord Jesus and his miracles of raising the dead and before his resurrection and yet before these things Abraham had this confidence in God. How did that come about? We find that Job had the same confidence, and oddly enough, Job begins to lay hold of this confidence while he is struggling with his own sickness and his own pain and his own suffering and his own misery, and after he's been confronted with multiple experiences of death, the death of all of his livestock, the death of all of his children, and then the imposition of that death coming upon his own body. And Go to Job chapter 14. I'll read you again out of the New King James. Job chapter 14. Let me read to you verses 10 through 15 from the book of Job. In which in the face of death and in the face of the suffering that death brings, Job began to nurse a hope that God could raise him up. Here's what Job writes. But man dies and is laid away. Indeed, he breathes his last. And where is he? As water disappears from the sea, and a river becomes parched and dries up, so man lies down and does not rise, till the heavens are no more. They will not awake, nor be roused from their sleep. And there's the sudden, stunning appearance of death. And then Job prays this, Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait till my change comes. You shall call and I will answer you. You shall desire the work of your hands. God, I'm the work of your hands and it's not going to be complete at death. And I'm going to wait for the moment. When you call me forth, again, as Job's sufferings endure, so endures and grows this hope that he would be brought forth before a Redeemer who would overcome all of his misery and would overcome all of his suffering and in the resurrection would grant to him life and benefit and blessing. And so in Job 19, you might turn over there for a second, Job's hope continues to rise and it culminates in the expressions of verses 25 through 27. And actually, if you read the book of Job, you'll see that the whole narrative of the book of Job begins to turn at this moment of profession that comes to Job, which hope begins to break in upon the story that's before us of Job in the midst of his suffering. Job cries out, For I know that my Redeemer lives, 
and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Now some commentators look at that passage and say, well, it says that I shall see in my flesh doesn't mean that he actually is hoping in a physical resurrection, because it could mean that I shall see out of my own flesh. The problem is they didn't go on to read that I shall behold with my own eyes. <laughs> I shall behold with my own eyes these things, how my heart yearns within me. How did Job come by way of that confidence? How did Abraham come by way of this confidence or conviction that God raised the dead, that he regenerated the thing that had ceased to live? I am relatively certain that both Job and Abraham knew the account of creation, how God had taken earth and formed this inert mass of dirt and out of it called forth and brought forth a man and how God had then taken one half of the man, you might say, or out of the man, had brought forth and called forth the woman in the midst of his slumber. And maybe that is the point in the understanding that began to give them this conviction and this understanding that God brought life out of death. But I think it's something more than that. Yes, there is more behind this stunning confession that God gives life to the dead. And we'll consider it more in our next broadcast. I hope you'll join us. Until then, I want to thank you for listening to this broadcast brought to you by Church Partnership Evangelism and the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. To learn more about our ministries, go to traincpe.org or breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, may the Lord bless you.